Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, When He Opened the Book, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for January 27th, 2019. One of the first songs I learned in Sunday school was called, Read Your Bible, Pray Every Day. It required us, then preschoolers, to curl up small and tight on the carpeted floor of our children's chapel, like seeds full of promise and slowly unfurl as we sang, Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. With each grow, we were supposed to shoot up from the carpet a few inches, until finally we were on our tippy toes with our hands in the air, straining for the ceiling. Verse 1 was an invitation. If it didn't convince us, there was a cautionary verse 2. Don't read your Bible, don't ever pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. I actually liked the second verse better. I'd compete with my classmates to see who could shrink the smallest and fastest. As I was short for my age, I usually won. Depending on what kind of faith or non-faith tradition you grew up in, this early introduction to the Bible might sound familiar or radically strange. I have Christian friends whose relationship with the Bible is irreverent but remote. They read it only on holidays or on special family occasions like baptisms. I have others who feel guilty that the book is gathering dust on their bookshelves, but find it too bewildering or triggering to crack open. I even have one friend whose mother actively discouraged her from reading the Bible when she was a teenager, for fear that it would ruin her faith. For my part, I grew up reading the Bible compulsively, as if Jesus' approval of me depended on it, as if the ancient book had fallen straight out of the sky with my name on the cover, as if its meaning, singular, were obvious as if it were, to borrow a common acronym, essential for my success and survival. Basic instructions before leaving Earth. In time, this intense and naive relationship soured. My questions about the Bible's reliability, historicity, interpretation, and misuse grew so thick and convoluted that I couldn't approach the book without fuming. For a long time, I put my copy away, and nearly hyperventilated if I heard other people reading certain sections of it aloud. I no longer knew what it meant to grow as a result of engaging with the Bible, so I shrank. I shrank away. All of this to say, I come to the lectionary this week, a lectionary featuring two detailed scenes of Bible reading from a complicated place. These days, my my relationship with God's Word is contested and fraught. I respect it, but I also wrestle with it. So I was surprised, very surprised, when I read the lectionary and had the reaction I had. The only definitive thing I can share with you is that both Bible reading scenes stopped me in my tracks. Both brought me to tears. Both reawakened a hunger for the good book and filled me with a fresh sense of urgency about growing into its pages. Whether the scenes will do the same for anyone else, I can't say, but I'm happy this week to share what I've noticed and experienced. The first scene is from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, and it describes a beautiful and hard-won moment in Israel's history. Some quick backstory. Nehemiah is a minor figure in the court of the king of Persia. When Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem is a broken, fire-raised wreck, he begs the king to let him return to his homeland and rebuild the city of his ancestors. The obstacles to the rebuilding are fierce and numerous, but Nehemiah persists and finally succeeds in restoring Jerusalem's wall and gates. He then invites his people back from exile and asks them to gather in the square before the water gate for an assembly. Our lectionary picks up there, at the moment when the prophet Isaiah opens a book in the sight of all people and reads from the law of Moses from early morning until midday. 
He reads until the assembly of men and women gathered in the square open their ears, understand, stand up, raise their hands, worship with their faces to the ground, say, Amen, Amen, weep as they hear the words God has for them, and then return to their homes to eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, because the joy of the Lord is their strength. It's an astonishing image of a communal Bible reading experience. It takes a diverse group of people on a journey from attentiveness to comprehension to affirmation to wonder to grief to worship to joy to celebration. I read it over and over again with an aching sense of need, desire, and envy. When was the last time I read the Bible with such sustained attentiveness and expectation? When was the last time I savored the sweetness and the sorrow it contains? When was the last time I trusted God's word to tell me my story? to hold, recognize, and contain me, to name the contours of my past, present, and future in ways that brought me to my knees in relief and gratitude? When was the last time I allowed the good book to draw me so deeply into community that I couldn't help but celebrate and share the goodness of God with other people afterwards? Something powerful and transformative happens when Ezra opens the book. What happens is not magic, neither is it manipulation. What happens is that the people consent to listen to God's word with their whole hearts, to receive what's read in a spirit of openness and vulnerability, and to express their comprehension and acts of celebration and sharing. What would it be like to open the book and find such authentic joy? The second scene takes place centuries later in the backwater town of Nazareth. It's a Sabbath day soon after Jesus' baptism and subsequent temptation in the wilderness. Filled with the power of the Spirit, Jesus returns to his hometown, enters the synagogue he has likely attended since boyhood, and stands up, as is the custom, to read from the prophets. He asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, unrolls it, finds the passage he wants, and reads aloud. By the time he's finished reading, the Gospel of Luke tells us, every eye in the synagogue is fixed on him. Luke offers us this reading scene as the inaugural act of Jesus' ministry an act in which he proclaims his identity, his purpose, and his vocation. What I love about this scene is that Jesus chooses to reveal the meaning of his life and work through the beloved and well-worn words of Scripture, words his audience has heard a thousand times, words no doubt rich with communal memory and meaning, but also words in danger of losing their power through overfamiliarity. It's not as if the Son of God is incapable of penning a new and shiny mission statement. He is, after all, the incarnate Word himself. But he doesn't improvise. He opens a book and makes the old words of the tradition his own. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As if to say, the word lives here and now. It is organic. It breathes. It moves in fresh and revolutionary ways. The word of God is neither dull nor dead. It is alive. Of course, as we will see in next week's lectionary, the opening of the book doesn't always go smoothly for those bold enough to attempt it. Unlike the assembly that joyfully receives Ezra's reading, Jesus' audience recoils in shock and outrage when he makes the words of Scripture his own. And yet, just for a moment, when Jesus stands before them, unrolls a scroll, and reads, they find themselves riveted. As I contemplate the second scene, I wonder if the Bible is fresh or dull, organic or stagnant, alive or dead in my spiritual perception? Is the Bible a go-to book I open when I'm searching for meaning and purpose? Do I allow it to shape my core longings? Would I ever search its pages as Jesus did in order to find and name my vocation? For me, the danger is over-familiarity. 
a cynical refusal to be surprised by a book I've known since I was a little kid in Sunday school, growing and shrinking. For the others of us, a danger might be unfamiliarity, or apathy, or fear. And yet for all of us, the challenge remains to unroll the scroll, to read and receive, to find the joy of the Lord in a collection of ancient pages brimming with the life and testimony of the Holy Spirit. If we can do these things, then we will be released to share God's abundance with others, and our worship will become a feast. This is the beautiful and unending invitation. What happens when you open the book? For books this week, we review Einstein, His Life and Universe by Walter Isaacson. This is a book review written by Brad Keister. Albert Einstein is regarded by many as the greatest scientist of the 20th century, yet his image at large is often one of pop icon status, with photos that suggest an unkept, absent-minded professor and pithy quotes to haul out on the right occasion. Walter Isaacson's biography attempts to describe the full person, clearly with one-of-a-kind talent, yet vulnerable and flawed as we all are, trying to make his way what was often a very hostile world. Two major drivers in Einstein's life were fertile imagination and a deep distrust of authority. He mastered the basics of science with ease but preferred to look for challenges. He found them in the landscape of experimental data whose new interpretations, his among them, established relativity and quantum mechanics as a new paradigm of physics. Isaacson carefully lays out the challenges to the conventional interpretations that were in place at the turn of the 20th century, and then describes the leaps of imagination that Einstein made that in very real terms meant looking at the world differently. Einstein drew deeply from philosophical perspectives as well as from recent advances in mathematics. As with Isaac Newton centuries before him, Einstein's contributions meant new ideas and not just a rearrangement of existing concepts. Einstein, the man, had many facets that did not always match with one another. He was capable of compassion, but sometimes expressed it in odd ways. His son considered him to be unsympathetic and was estranged from his father for many years. He was steadily driven to identify with, the old, with his fellow Jews, in no, small part the, in no small part by the anti-Semitism that pervaded the first half of the 20th century, but was ambivalent about God. The ultimate validity of a scientific theory through experimental tests was clearly a priority for Einstein, yet he often fretted about his standing in the professional community. He felt certain that he would win a Nobel Prize for his work, but he had to wait many years for that recognition. During that long wait, his estranged wife agreed to divorce him on condition that he give her the prize money should he receive the prize. Einstein strongly advocated the rapid development of the atomic bomb to President Roosevelt because of his fear of what the Germans would do if they obtained it first. Following World War II, he regarded the development of the hydrogen bomb and the nuclear arms race in general as leading to certain annihilation. His deep philosophical approach to physics led him to question the foundations of quantum mechanics, what we can measure and what we know, almost as soon as he published some of the first work on that topic. While most of the physics community moved on with the view that quantum mechanics is a fait accompli, Einstein proposed test after test that might indicate a flaw in its foundation. Many of these tests have now been performed thanks to advanced laser technology, which is not available in Einstein's day, and quantum mechanics has survived intact. While his later years indeed carried disappointments rather than new ideas, these do not detract from the profound contributions that propelled both science and technology into a very different world for over 100 years. For movies this week, Dan reviews Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. This 2017 documentary film by Frederick Wiseman, his 44th film, 
was on many best-of-the-year lists for its understated celebration of one of the greatest knowledge centers in the world. The NYPL, which has 53 million items and 92 branches in several boroughs, is funded by both the City of New York and private philanthropy. The main iconic branch at 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, the one with the lions out front, was opened in 1911. Although the 88-year-old Wiseman doesn't like the term, others have called his style observational cinema, where nothing is staged or even explained. There are no voiceovers, no descriptive narrative, or even any subtitles that would tell you that you are watching Elvis Costello, Patti Smith, Richard Dawkins, or ta Coates. Rather, like the proverbial fly on the wall, he just lets his camera linger for 3.24 hours, showing what happens in the library, and it's way more than checking out books from the Dewey Decimal System. In Ex Libris, we see job fairs, piano concerts, public lectures like Books at Noon, a talk about housing for people with disabilities, book club discussions, academic tutoring for kids, free internet access, and computer literacy classes for those who would otherwise remain in the digital dark. Braille lessons, senior citizen dance classes, outreach to the deaf, the homeless finding a place of safety and quiet, staff people answering questions on the phone, and the board of directors discussing its mission and how to fund it. I watch this film on the PBS website. And finally, for poems this week, in honor of the life and legacy of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair, I say to you today, my friends. And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having its lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands, with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 27th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.